Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 8 as we return to our exposition of this gospel. Luke chapter 8 as we will be looking this morning at verses 26 through 39. As you're turning there, I do want to thank you all for your prayerful support of our trip to Ecuador. It was an amazingly fruitful time as we were able to teach a homiletics course to the seminary students and church leaders in the mountains and again in the jungles. And as y'all saw in the video that I, I forwarded last week that began our service, they are very deeply appreciative of Morningview Baptist Church and uh, send their love and regards. So this morning, looking at Luke 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, saying with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat. And returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Join me in prayer. Father God, this is your word. And as your people, Lord, we delight in it. It is our delight to come to these pages, to, to be comforted, Father God, to be convicted, to have our thoughts lifted from the, the, the troubles of this world to the lofty truths of heaven, to be reminded of who you are and how you have given your Son to save us from our sin, to adopt us as your very own, to give us life, Lord, and the promise of an eternity with you ahead of us. As we are brought to this particular narrative this morning, Father God, help us to see and know and to understand again that there is none beyond the reach of our Christ, that He exercises authority over all of creation, over all the spiritual realms, and His good purpose will be accomplished. Guide our minds and hearts now, Lord, as we explore this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You know, it's a very interesting passage we have before us this morning because it puts a reality in front of us that we too often give very little attention to. And that is the reality of demonic activity. In our day and age, men like the ones mentioned in this text would be locked up in a mental ward at a hospital, no doubt diagnosed with several sociopathic and self-destructive disorders and kept on a robust program of mood-altering drugs. Now, not all behavioral and mental disorders are demonic, but many of them could be. The fact of the matter is that in our scientifically advanced culture, we give far too little attention to the demonic. And there are many reasons, but I believe there are three that are dominant. First, the the world at large treats the ideas of Satan and demons basically as mythology, even more than they do the reality of God. There are many who look at the realities of God as, as myth, and so how much more the idea of Satan and demons who are active among us. The doctrinally informed church associates a focus on demonic activity and spiritual warfare as something regulated largely to the charismatic movement. When satanic activity is acknowledged, we think that far too much credit is given to Satan, far too much power assigned to the hands of men, and far too little attention given to God's sovereignty in matters of spiritual warfare. And I would agree with all three of those things. But what we cannot do if we're coming from that doctrinally informed biblical position is to ignore the fact that Satan and his minions are active, remain active in our world even today. And we ignore that to our peril. Thirdly, Satan would prefer that mankind in general and Christians specifically remain largely ignorant of his workings in this world and in the church. Because after all, an unacknowledged and unrecognized foe has far greater latitude to wreak havoc. And that is exactly what Satan is doing. Because many people simply seem to ignore the reality of who he is and what he is doing, he wreaks havoc in our world, in our churches, in our families, and in individual lives. This is why Paul reminded us in that powerful chapter of Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, Satan and his demons are powerful, active beings in our world today. But you know the good news, don't you? Jesus Christ has ultimate power and authority over all. Though we have no strength to to come against them on our own, they are already defeated foes in the kingdom of Christ our Savior. And it is just a matter of time until he consummates all of human history and consigns Satan and his demons ultimately to the lake of fire for all eternity. This story reminds us of the power of our Lord. Reminds us that we have hope even in a world that is ruled by Satan and his minions, who is the prince of the power of the air. Today we will see through this text three truths about Jesus. We will see his divine sovereignty affirmed, we will see his divine power applied, and we will see his divine identity announced. So let's first consider his divine sovereignty affirmed. 
In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the healing of the Gerasene demoniac always follows the stilling of the storm. Look back in your text, just to the verse right before our passage this morning. Look back to verse 25 in Luke 8. It says, And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Well, in the minds of the gospel writers, this display of Christ's power over demonic forces is an answer to that question. So it's no accident that in all three of the synoptic gospels, this story of Christ casting out the demon, the legion demons, follows that question by the disciples. Upon making their way across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples landed on the eastern shore of the Gentile region known as the Decapolis, or Ten Cities. Gerasene was one of those cities, and it controlled the region in which this portion of the shoreline was located. Luke additionally tells us that the man wore no clothing, that he had once been captured, but not even chains could hold him because he was so strong, and that he was homeless and lived in caves or tombs that were carved into the surrounding hillside. We also see that he is possessed by a multitude of demons. Now remember the origin of demons. Roman, excuse me, Revelation 12 reminds us that one-third of the heavenly host left with Satan when he was cast down out of heaven. And now Satan and his demons roam the earth doing all they can to thwart the purposes of God. Here, through this man, they terrorized the local population so much that anyone seeking to go down to the Sea of Galilee would have to travel another road just to avoid this man. Everyone would have to do that except for Jesus. When he arrived in the region, when he arrived on this particular shore, the demon-possessed man didn't come out from the tombs to terrorize him. He came out of the tombs to bow down before him in fear. Look at verses 28 and 29. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. These verses reveal two critical facts to us, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the one who holds all authority over every living thing, including demons. That's first. And secondly, the demons know and believe more about Jesus than most human beings today. And certainly more than Jesus' dumbfounded disciples believed on this day. What they said to Jesus was an affirmation of his person and sovereignty in three ways. First of all, the demons affirmed with their opening question that Jesus was the righteous son, whereas they were of their wicked father, Satan. We see this in their question. What have you to do with me? Contrary to the later accusations of the Pharisees, these demons knew that their evil agenda had nothing to do with Jesus, and they were struck with fear at his presence. Secondly, they affirmed with their confession that Jesus was the Son of the Most High God. This acknowledgement would not come from the disciples until much later with Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. But the demons knew this to be true as a matter of personal experience. Remember what God said on the day of Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that truth was well known to all the angels in heaven long before Satan's rebellion. Thirdly, the demons affirmed with their words that Jesus had the authority of the sovereign to deal with them in any way that he desired. 
As verse 28 says, they knew that Jesus could torment or torture them if he wanted to. This fact becomes even more explicit in verse 31 as they must answer his question of their name and as they acknowledge his authority to cast them into the abyss if he so desired. Jesus could do with them what he wished, when he wished. So their acknowledgement was a confirmation of his sovereign divinity because only God can command spiritual beings. Brothers and sisters, as I alluded to earlier, the sad fact of that day is still the sad fact of our day. Both now and then, demons know and acknowledge more about the nature and the person of Christ than most men do. Even more frightening, they acknowledge more about judgment and hell than most men do. James Montgomery Boyce, well-known pastor and author who passed in the last century, he notes that among men, there are five common illusions about God's final judgment. And we hear these all the time in our culture, right? Five common illusions about God's final judgment. First of all, some believe that there will be no final judgment. This idea that Christ is going to return, that there's going to be a dividing between the righteous and the wicked, that the righteous are going to go into heaven, that the wicked are going to go into eternal conscious torment, uh, that, that's just, that's myth. That's just something made up. That's not the reality. So some believe there will be no final judgment. Then there are some who believe that if there is a final judgment, it will not be for them. You know, God is a gracious and loving God. I, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. Sure, I make mistakes, but I'm, I'm decent. God's judgment is going to be for those really, really, really evil and bad people who have done really, really bad stuff. Thirdly, there are some who believe that they are without any serious shortcomings in God's sight. Again, most people generally think of themselves as being very good. And so they think there's no need of the judgment. Fourthly, some believe that even if they are guilty of some things, God is going to be too kind to judge. Okay, sure, I've fallen short, I've broken some of God's commands, but again, you know, God is, you know, my heavenly grandfather in the sky, and grandpa would never not want me to be with him, so, you know, God's going to overlook the things that I've done wrong. And fifth, and finally, this is one that is very sad. There are some who believe that if there is such a thing as hell, and if God does send them there, it's just going to be a matter of spending quality time with old friends, right? They just think, well, you know, why not go to hell? All of my friends are going to be there. And they joke about it. Brothers and sisters, isn't it sad that demons grasp more about the person of God and the reality of his judgment than men do? In fact, that we see all of these five things voiced in our culture today is evidence of how he has deceived the minds and hearts of lost men and women all over the globe. This is a result of sin. It is this activity of Satan that blinds the eyes of men. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We're to be aware of this, brothers and sisters. Going back to what Paul said in Ephesians 6, we need to understand that when we step out of the church and into the world, as we step out into our mission field, we are engaging in a spiritual battle. Men and women out there are held captive by their sin. They are held captive by Satan and his forces. They are held captive by a love of this world. And so we go forth and we tell of Christ. We go forth and we pray because we know God is the only one who can take away the blindness of their eyes, who can take away the deafness of their ears, who can take away the stoniness of their hearts to give them new life. Let us be faithful to do that. To remember the battle and to depend on the one who has already won the battle. That is Christ our Lord. Let's go on in our text and see His divine power applied. His divine power applied. As this encounter took place, there was a herd of pigs feeding with their herdsmen watching over them. Mark 5.13 tells us that it was about 2,000 pigs this fact once again confirms that this was a Gentile region because pigs were detestable animals to Jews. When the demons realized that Jesus was not going to allow them to continue their present evil work, in desperation, they decided to make a request of him. They begged him to let them go into the herd of pigs, right? They're thinking, okay, Jesus can send us into the abyss. Oh, look, there's a whole herd of pigs there, room for all of us. Jesus, can we go over there? Now, we're not told why they made this request, but there are many suggestions. We know they identify themselves as legion, and since they knew Jesus would not allow them to possess other humans, so large a herd of pigs was the only other available option. A second opinion is that perhaps they also thought that since Jews hated pigs, Jesus would not mind sending them there. Thirdly, and I think this is probably the most likely opinion, that the demons had a direct intention to inhabit and destroy the pigs to create a hatred of Jesus among the owners of the herd and the people of the city. After all, so large of a herd would have been the meat supply for the city. And so the demons, thinking strategically, were thinking, if we got to go somewhere, we might as well go somewhere where we can defame in some way the name of Christ. Whatever their motive might have been, Jesus granted their request and we want to realize that from a Godward perspective, he did so because it served his sovereign purpose. Verse 32 says, so he gave them permission. His power and authority was undeniable and irresistible. So the demonic spirits left the man and went into the herd of pigs. And then in a frenzied rush, the herd ran down a steep bank into the Sea of Galilee and died in the waters, drowned in the waters there. The herdsmen spread the news throughout the region quickly, so thousands of people from all around came to see for themselves. And what did they see when they got there? They saw the man who had terrorized them for so long, now sitting at the feet of Jesus, fully clothed and in his right mind. Then they looked at the Sea of Galilee and saw thousands of bloated pigs floating in the water. Of the two things that they saw, it was the sight of the demon-possessed man now set free that caused them such great fear. Dead pigs were one thing, 
but a dangerous, raging lunatic transformed into a peaceful, rational man was evidence of a power that truly scared them. Through this sequence of events, we're able to see Christ's sovereign purpose in granting the demon's request to flee into the, into the herd of pigs. Jesus had a threefold purpose in how things developed here. First of all, the exorcism of the demons from the possessed man and into the herd of pigs that subsequently stampeded was dramatic proof of Jesus' divine power and authority over the malevolent forces of hell. The fierceness and violence of the man had been transferred to the pigs, leaving no doubt that the man who once terrorized this region had now been healed and set free through his encounter with Christ. Secondly, the way this all happened brought the entire city out to meet Jesus. If the demons had simply departed and the pigs had not been destroyed, the people would not have come out to see what happened for themselves. The goal of the demons was raw hatred and destruction, but the sovereign purpose of Christ was to expose a Gentile population to the message of his person, to the power of his sovereign hand. So the suicide of 2,000 pigs served that sovereign purpose. Thirdly, this instance revealed the hearts of the Gentile population. Look at verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. A man who could both command the forces of hell and set men free from violence and hatred was in their midst. And they did not want any part of Jesus. In unison, they said, we want you gone. Leave us. They spurned him out of fear and misunderstanding, which is the same motive that later drove the Jewish religious leaders to kill him. Brothers and sisters, the reaction of these Gentiles sets a critical question before all of us. When we finally behold Christ in all His power, will we shrink away from Him in fear? Or will we draw near to Him in love? The difference is whether or not you know Him. Whether or not you are trusting in Him. As I've said many times, and we'll say again, there are only two types of people in this world when it comes to eternity. Those who know and are trusting in Jesus Christ to be their Savior, the one who's died on the cross for the, for, to forgive their sins and reconcile them to a holy God, and those who have not. Which are you this morning? Will you flee from the judge? Or will you run to your Lord? We see here more clearly than ever that Jesus is a sovereign Lord who exercises all authority and salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who came and took on flesh, who gave Himself as a sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, who died the death that the sinner deserved. But Jesus has conquered death. He has risen from the grave. He appeared to the disciples. He is at the right hand of, the God, of God. And He now intercedes for all who would trust in Him. And Jesus is coming soon in judgment. Even back at the time this was written, the writers of the New Testament make it clear, these are the last days. 
And I know from a human perspective, okay, 2,000 years of last days, that's a long time. I mean, you know, is it going to happen? Is it not? It's going to happen. I know with the way the world is changing, we wonder if it may happen soon. But it is going to happen. Will you stand before the Lord recoiling from Him because He is your judge or drawing near to Him because He is your Savior? Oh, precious ones, I pray that you would know Him as your Savior. Jesus Christ has given all of Himself to do what you could not do. None of us are capable of reconciling ourselves to God on our own. None of us is righteous enough God's standard is sinless perfection. Is that you? Then understand that apart from Christ, you are a child of wrath. You are under threat of eternal damnation even now. But the free offer of the gospel is held out to all. Will you this day turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? His offer of salvation is available to you even now. Turn from your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Know His grace and His love. Know His salvation. And if you're here this morning, and perhaps even as a believer, you think to yourself, Pastor Sean, I've done so much. I am so unworthy of the gift of Christ. Let me affirm to you, you are right. You are so unworthy. So am I. But the beautiful truth of the gospel is we do not receive this because we are worthy. We are given this gift of grace because Christ is worthy. Because Christ is merciful. Because His grace abounds and abounds and superabounds as He lavishes it upon sinners who could never merit, who could never deserve such a love. Be comforted by this. Look to Christ. That takes us to the final point where we see His divine identity announced. So the people there on the shore, they wanted Jesus to leave. And Jesus responded to their request by getting back into the boat with his disciples to return, to return to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. But look with me at verse 38 and 39. Look there with me in your text. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The man who had formerly lived amongst the tombs for an extended period of time, this man who had broken chains, this man who had been filled with a legion of demons, this man who had terrorized all those in that surrounding region, now knew Jesus. And in his heart, all he wanted to do was be with Jesus. He begged him to be able to go with him. He was forever changed by this encounter and he wanted nothing more than to go as a disciple of Christ. This is a testimony to the fact of what Jesus says in John 8, 36. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. But Jesus did not permit this man to go with him. 
And, and that seems kind of strange, right? Because, you know, elsewhere in the Gospels, we see Jesus. If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Well, now we have a man who wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no. Jesus had a particular calling for this man. It's obvious that the people wanted him gone, but this man who had been set free, who was from the very city that these people had come out of, this man was now the perfect evangelist to send back into the city to preach the gospel. So Jesus commissioned him right then and there, and the man went throughout the whole city as a trophy of God's grace, telling everyone about Christ. Brothers, sisters, if you're here this morning as a redeemed child of God, you're a trophy of His grace too. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. But if we are in Christ, we've been set free. We have a story to tell. We have the privilege of going forth as representatives of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, knowing, knowing that the victory is His. Yes, we go into a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. We go into a world where Satan and his demons are ever active to blind the minds and the hearts of unbelievers. But guess what? None of them can stand before Christ our Savior. People today often have the misperception that God and Satan are somehow locked in some cosmic battle, each one contending with the other to see who will conquer, who will reign victorious. And spiritual warfare between the forces of light and the forces of darkness is an ongoing reality. But listen, understand this. The winner has already been determined. More accurately, who would win was never in question. Never in question. God is God and Satan is a created being who only exists because God allows him to exist. Demons are very powerful, and they are far superior to men in strength and intelligence and in power. Satan and his minions are actively doing all they can to oppose the will and the work of God. But listen, the devil is nothing more than, the, than a rabid dog on the end of a short leash held by our sovereign Savior. God exercises absolute power over him. And you know what has to be the most frustrating thing in the universe to Satan? His wicked deeds ultimately always serve God's sovereign purpose. Isn't that amazing to stop and think? He's out there trying to do everything he can to thwart the will and the purpose of God, only to find out, man, I helped him again! Right? Consider the temptations of Christ. Satan's goal was to lead Jesus into sin, thus destroying his holiness, shattering the Godhead, and ending any chance of man's salvation. But through those temptations, Jesus proved that he succeeded where the first Adam failed. When we look at redemptive history, Adam and Eve were meant to have dominion over creation to serve God in the perfection of the garden, but they gave in to the voice of Satan, but not Jesus. When we look at the history of redemption, Jesus is the second Adam who stood strong, who resisted the temptations of Satan, and as the second Adam, he is the perfect Savior of all mankind. He is the Redeemer that all of history points toward. Think about the cross. At the cross, Satan thought that he was getting his greatest victory. Yes, he twisted and turned the minds and hearts of the religious leaders. 
to arrest Jesus, to call for his crucifixion. Yes, he manipulated even Pilate to be weak in that moment and to give in to to the rioting Jews. He ordered that Jesus be crucified. Satan once again thought he had won the day, but then the cross turned out to be God's ultimate triumph. The cross intended to be by Satan, the murder of the Lord, turned out to be the instrument of man's redemption. Brothers and sisters, the sovereign power of our Savior is never in question. Our Lord Jesus always wins. Always. Always. Christ always has been and always will be the victor. So trust in Him. If you're waging a battle in your personal life that you feel overcome by, maybe you're losing a battle with sin. Maybe you're struggling with something so deep that is, it, it is driving you into despair and depression. Maybe you're wrestling with some decision. Rest in Christ, brothers and sisters. As you are one with Christ, your destiny is assured. Yes, life may take you through different ups and downs. I shouldn't say life should take you. Christ will take you through different paths of life. Some of those paths will be rough and some of those paths will be easy. But Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. And you will never, ever ultimately be overcome because you are strengthened by the very Lord of heaven and earth who possesses all authority. As John tells us in 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Brothers and sisters, let that be our comfort. Let that guide us when we're going through the throes of marital strife. Draw near to Christ. Lay your heart before Him. Give up your pride. Give up what you need. Give yourself to Christ, trusting Him, knowing that He can heal. He can overcome. That applies to your parenting. That applies to your work. That applies to any struggle you are facing, brothers and sisters. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Christ is our strength. Christ is our hope. Christ is why we go forward in life confidently. Because he is the victor. Let us pray. God, you are so good. How privileged we are to come to this story this morning and see the wonder of your power and sovereignty exercised even during your ministry on earth over demonic forces. You are the king who has conquered. You are the king who is conquering every day. And so, Lord, as we behold you, May we love you more dearly. As we behold you, Father God, may we deepen in our faith and trust. 
And as we love you, Lord, and deepen in our faith and trust, may we be found to be faithful trophies of grace. May we be like this very man who, when released from captivity, returned to his city proclaiming the wonders of Jesus Christ. Lord, make us a people who proclaim your excellencies as those who have been called out of darkness and into the light. Have your way in us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.